Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the Restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Peidecker, and uh, this is part two of our uh, Mormonism and mental health conversation. Now, I just want to remind our audience that Nathan and I are not trained professionals. Uh, Nathan is, uh, that, that's what he's going to school for. Um, and uh, you have an associate's, is that correct? Uh, in Yes, I, I'm just an undergrad right now. Yeah. So. so that's, but either way, the, but, but we both have life experiences. One, we both have had um, mental health crises in our in our lives, and uh, we both come from a religious backgrounds. Me from an evangelical background, uh, a conservative evangelical background, and uh, Nathan from um, uh, obviously from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And of course, some of you probably remember from our first interview where. Uh, that I had with Nathan, where he talked about the PTSD that he experienced on his mission. And, uh, you know, it just, it was a story that really touched a lot of people. So we both kind of thought, let's just have a conversation about mental health within not only just Mormonism, but within a religious context uh, in general. But because this is a show that's about, well, it's Mormon book reviews, of course, we're going to explore the restoration more than others. But then I'm going to kind of add my evangelical worldview or experiences as well to kind of inform the conversation. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, Steve. I'm excited to join you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the things we were talking about off camera was, um, you know, if you look at the Bible and you look at the Book of Mormon, there are examples of, um, like we were talking about King Saul, obviously was having, in the story, was having an obviously depressive uh, episode. And it was so bad that he would bring in King David to play uh, soothing music for him on his lyre. Uh, so even in uh, the Old Testament period, we have stories about what we would call depression. And you, would, of course, have referred to the book of Job. Let's just kind of like talk about scripture and how it describes uh, mental illness as we understand it today. That's a great question. I think um, I think it's it, it's such a brilliant illustration, too, because in, in our last discussion, I briefly mentioned uh, that this goes as far back as uh, Sumerian medical texts from ancient Mesopotamia thousands of years ago, that, that the question of mental illness or even just um, our mental states and our, our moods in general is, is certainly not new. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us too much to find it uh, discussed in scripture. As, he, as you mentioned with, uh, with your example there, I think that, uh, I think it's, it's, it's certainly something that's occupied people's attention. Um, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm drawing a blank. Oh, that's okay. No, but it's interesting <laughs> because, you know, let's, let's actually bring this into the, to the book of Mormon, because you've, you gave me an example of, uh, with Alma, uh, an interesting experience that he has, uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so with Alma, he has, as, 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 those who are familiar with the Book of Mormon know Alma has Alma the Younger has a, a very pivotal conversion experience, as we often talk about it, where he and the the sons of Mosiah are going about making trouble for the church and for the Nephites in general, um, and uh, they they encounter an angel that's sent from God, and the result ends up being that uh, that Alma ends up going into this almost comatose state after encountering this angel. And he has this experience within that state that he, after he comes out of it, he finds himself converted to Christ and, and sharing some fairly, you know, uh, expected statements like I've been born of God, uh, I've been forgiven of my sins, a lot of kingdom of God language and the like. 
Um, and it's, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of um, overlooked details of that story. For instance, again, we usually, we usually in the LDS church at least, um, conceptualize it as a conversion experience. But I think there's a lot of psychological sophistication to that story that goes overlooked. For instance, uh, Joseph Spencer points this out in his book and other testament uh, that the angel is often assumed to put Alma in his comatose state that he's in for several days, in fact. But the text never actually says that the angel itself puts Alma into this state. In fact, it seems to imply, according to Spencer, that Alma himself descends into this state. And I think it's, it's a fascinating moment because Alma essentially turns off all external sensory data and just falls into himself and sees what's there. He goes into a state of like introspection. And uh, what he finds is this set of self-loathing memories. It's, it's interesting because he, on the surface, Alma is essentially this sort of gleeful rationalist. He's kind of the hero of reason. He's the, he's the, the beloved Reddit atheist who is here to rescue you from your delusional religion. And then he flees into himself and what you find is a lot of self-hatred. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting because these aren't all of Alma's memories, but these are the memories that Alma has of self-hatred. And when you, when you look at um, a writer like, uh, or a psychoanalyst, I should say, like Jacques Lacan from France, he talks a lot about how memory is, uh, we're never fully recalling every memory that we have on, on command. In fact, a lot of our memory is selected by how we think about ourselves in the present. And so Alma seems to think of himself in a very self-loathing way. And so that's the memories that he gets. And instead, what he, what he ends up remembering almost at random is a memory of his father preaching about Christ. And so suddenly there's this moment of, uh, of illumination that Alma has. This, I guess, would be his conversion experience where he remembers his father giving a sermon about Christ who would come and you know, bear the, the pains and the sicknesses of, of, of the people. And uh, what's interesting is that Alma, rather than being cleansed or even necessarily forgiven for immoral actions, instead what happens is he experiences this exceptional illuminating light. So instead of uh, being left with his self-loathing and his desire to be destroyed even to the point of extinction, um, and, and instead of being washed of all of those memories, Instead, Alma gets this full view of himself in the light of Christ, which, which ends up being this, uh, you know, this, this light of grace, this unconditional love and acceptance. Um, it's, it's such an interesting story to me because I think it's, it's a great scriptural precedent for turning inward and exploring one's own inner experience. You know, and then it just reminds, you know, of even just with Christ, you know, we had a conversation where there are moments when, when Christ at moments in his ministry has to separate himself and be alone uh, and, and deal with things. Maybe just kind of uh, contemplate that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because I, as we explored kind of in, in our previous interview um, about my mission experiences, it, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Indian and Southeast Asian traditions, especially when it comes to meditation techniques. And this is something that we often see where a, uh, a practitioner in some variety of school, whether it's, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism, yoga or the like, 
they'll they'll separate themselves from distractions. They'll usually go to a place where they can be alone and they will uh, begin to examine their own thoughts and emotions. And I think there's an interesting precedent in the New Testament in the four gospels of Jesus in moments having to separate himself from the crowds, from even his closest disciples and students, and having these really intensely private moments with himself and with his father, where he uh, has the opportunity, I would imagine at least, would have the opportunity to introspect, to try to examine his own feelings, try to uh, see where he is and where his father is. You know, so often I sometimes wonder that, you know, I actually was reading an article earlier today um, about how maybe a lot of people like talking about psychological issues and uh, the modern times, uh, a lot of scientists kind of reject thousands of years of religious practice as means of, uh, and now they're starting to figure out that, well, maybe these religions have been around for thousands of years and maybe they picked up practices that can be useful, useful tools uh, in, in, to help us. And they're finding there are certain, um, cer there are certain religious practices that people do that can be very helpful um, and, 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 and help you with in a psychological sense, you know, whether it's prayer or meditation. I like to say that, you know, I come from a charismatic uh, movement and there, it's a highly uh, enthusiastic religion, if you will. Uh, there's speaking in tongues. Uh, there's uh, there's a, dy dy a dynamic aspect to praise and worship, but there's also a, dy a dynamism that, that is involved in one's personal prayer life, where many people are often speaking in tongues in private, um, which I think sometimes like these practices that you know, scientists haven't really been paying a whole lot of attention to can bring a lot of uh, purpose to people and uh, bring bring wholeness into their life and actually help their well-being. So maybe we could talk a little bit about just how we can integrate spiritual practices uh, as within a maybe even within a Christian context that we could maybe embrace these ideas and use them. And and when we look at the Book of Mormon, it's a very it's 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 often cases of people having these powerful moments in their lives, life transforming moments uh, uh, that also happen. And that perhaps me being charismatic and the, and then also the, the restorationist movement, there's, there's an anticipation that the, uh, if one is trying to seek out a divine relationship uh, with the father, but also uh, in, and have these divine experiences, that there's something that we can actually plug into and, and be able to integrate into our lives that maybe some other um, Christian groups maybe can't. That's a mouthful, but. I think that's a great, <laughs> I think that's a great question too. Um, it's, it's interesting because I, I think in, in discussing spiritual techniques and practices, I'm actually reminded of a, of a conversation that happens a lot in the, uh, believe it or not, in the video game industry. There's an experience that they talk a lot about called ludonarrative dissonance. And uh, ludo means like play, and dissonance means like a disconnect between two things. So ludonarrative dissonance is a problem that video game developers will run into when the narrative of their game doesn't really connect with the game play itself, so the way it actually engages the player. And I think that there's actually, it's, it's interesting because I think that's actually very closely analogous to th something that I think religion will often struggle with, which is how do we make the narratives that we, we speak about and how do we make the principles that we speak about real in the lives of people? Um, so for instance, I, I shared a fairly detailed 
reading of, of Alma the Younger's conversion experience, but in, in a sense, that's really only a narrative that I can give you. It doesn't necessarily give you anything you can do with it. And so I think that uh, there have been a number of really fascinating spiritual practices that have helped to bridge the gap between narrative and spiritual experience. So for myself personally, something that I benefited tremendously from was, was finding meditation. And just as a, as a note, mindfulness, for instance, is a very popular form of meditation here in the West. It's actually not the only form of meditation in the East. There's all kinds of focusing techniques and the like. And, and the, the focus is essentially on giving your mind exercises that it can that it can do similar to like going to the gym and exercising your body in very particular ways you're exercising your mind in particular ways so that when stressful experiences occur or certain triggers in your environment occur that you find yourself more capable of responding to those rather than simply being dragged by them so in in the uh in the christian tradition for instance i think of uh centering prayer which is a very popular practice among, uh, uh, especially within Catholics, but it's it's uh, c within Catholicism within um, the Cistercian order. Uh, it's it's a very focused form of prayer that's actually, in my opinion, actually quite close to uh, mantra practices and the like. Basically, a man a manner of calming your mind to the point that you, uh, in in the case of centering prayer, to the point that you can have a clearer communion with God. I think that uh, that prayer in general, though, and, and the, the experiences that you described as well, uh, such as speaking in tongues in public and, and in private, I think these can be tools that can help us to train ourselves mentally and emotionally, or at, at the very least to condition ourselves mentally and emotionally to be able to handle the uh, emotional and mental demands of our day-to-day -day lives a little more readily. Hmm. Yeah, it's... You know, it just it, it, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is that I alluded to in our first conversation about how maybe we weren't given all the tools to deal with the world that we're living in. Um, but in one sense, we do have those tools at our disposal that are is within our faith traditions. Um, we just need to find them and utilize them and maybe also look mm -hmm. at these, these gifts that we've been given through our scriptures and through our histories of our of our peoples, um, that we can we can really rely heavily on these documents because they are kind of part of our history, and but they are also I mean, there are real people involved in these scriptures had real problems. You know, even when we look at like even the story of Joseph Smith, um, when you read some of his letters, you can tell this was a man who. Um, I mean, he was a dynamic person, but he, I mean, we, we're not going to psychoanalyze Joseph Smith, but I think that Joseph Smith, if you look at the, even Joseph Smith and what all that he went through, because he was jailed constantly and he was under threat, but the ability to be able to do what he was able to do is really remarkable when you consider all the stresses that were in his life. And then you also even look at the story of Brigham Young and what it took for him to, util, to be able to uh, forge a path to uh, Utah in a remarkable way. These are uh, examples of people in your tradition that maybe people can also draw inspiration from. Yeah, I, I think it, it touches on something that's really important too, which is I think the success of Mormonism was not primarily in the Mormon intellectual landscape. 
I think it was because of the Mormon experience. So you, you, for instance, you look at very early Mormonism when Joseph Smith was just beginning his career. The Book of Mormon is a, is a text that people would, you know, they, they would read it, but very rarely would they discuss like very in-depth readings of the text. It was the existence of the text itself that to them indicated that they could have this direct unmediated experience with God, which was exceptionally important to uh, to 19th century American Christians at the time, it was this sense in which these these fantastical stories of the New Testament were not just ancient history long gone, or even, you know, fables and legends, they were something that you yourself could experience, and the early Mormons seem to have some kind of palpably comparable experience in that sense. So I think it's it's important to understand that religious traditions in general are not so much uh, trying to propose propositional truths, though they do indeed do that, but I think that their, their primary goal is to trigger a certain kind of experience. And I think when you, when you recognize that, you start to realize that religion has been this exceptionally important tool throughout human history to try to do what I think modern psychotherapy and psychiatry and neuroscience are trying to address too with, with the data sets and the equipment that we have now that our ancestors didn't have, um, which is to try to find a way to live peaceably in the world, or at least meaningfully in the world. Hmm. And the unique thing about the, the Mormon experience, at least for the Utah saints, is that they do kind of have a shared collective psychology, I don't know, what would be the word, a shared, a, a collective shared identity that kind of connects them in a way that makes them very unique, but that could also be something that could be very helpful as well. Absolutely, I think um, it's it's interesting. I, I saw this TED talk with a gentleman that I, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. I think it's his first name is Christian, uh, but he he's a former skinhead. And now today he helps to deprogram uh, young men who have been taken in by skinhead groups or uh, by, uh, neo-Nazi groups and the like. And he, he, in his TED talk, he discussed how one of the things that these groups prey upon, especially with white young men, is their need for identity, purpose, and belonging. And while these groups certainly exploit those things, they're, they're still universal human needs. I think that we, we turn to religion uh, in one form or another in order to find that sense of who we are where we fit in into this universe, whether that's on like a microscopic level with our communities and our cultures, or on a macroscopic level where it comes to like deep time and the cosmos and so forth. And we need a purpose, we need something to do. We need a reason for us to be here rather than just being billiard balls. There's got to be some, on an emotional level, we have this need to, to feel that our actions are meaningful rather than just being random or someone else could have done it anyway. So who cares, that sort of thing. I think, uh, I think it's important to understand that religion has in its own way and in ver with varying levels of success, even within particular traditions, uh, has attempted to meet those three needs. And I think that even though in the West, generally speaking, we're kind of a post-Abrahamic culture in the sense that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam don't quite enjoy the same amount of power that they used to, as you said, you know, uh, in our, our previous discussion, that Christians in the United States are, are essentially losing a lot of the 
political and social power that they once had. I think that even as we potentially even leave behind these explicit traditions, I don't think we leave behind the human needs that drove their, if not their creation, at the very least their their uh, long history. Hmm. Hmm. You know, um, when I decided to tape the our initial interview with you, neither one of us really knew what to expect. But after talking with you and having these conversations with you, um, I thought, you know, I think it's time to have this conversation for people to hear. Now, I got so much of an outpouring of people that were really touched by our interview. Um, a lot of people said this was the best interview that you, that you did. Um, and uh, I've had people reach out to me and, and, and say how much it meant to them. And I know people reached out to you as well. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about your experience of just being this dude that as a friend of mine and we just met on on uh, on on facebook and we just started converting having a conversation with each other and then it led to us having this interview but more importantly just speak to maybe some of the responses and conversations you've had with people and um and just give us a little feedback on how all that's gone for you yeah absolutely i um <clears throat> i think something that really intri uh, intrigued me about when I first encountered your project is that I felt almost immediately that it had the potential to discuss things that that our typical podcasts and um, other venues and organizations within LDS culture or anything Mormon adjacent really can't. So it's, um, I, I saw you as kind of a boundary crosser in a good way. And uh, I felt that a lot of my experiences as a missionary crossed a lot of boundaries. They weren't these, um, they weren't the worst experiences that I possibly could have had. I mean, some missionaries return home permanently disabled. They, you know, they experience profound, even physical abuse at times. And this, this isn't the universal experience by any means, but, you know, some people experience some terrible, terrible things that pale, that, that make my experiences pale in comparison. And on the other end, some people experience these tremendously positive uh, missions that, as you what might imagine, Latter-day Saints love to foreground. So what we have are these, these sort of extremes here. And I felt like um, if your story wasn't my mission president told me I'm going to be his next plural wife, or that my mission president helped marry me and my wife because he had such a profound effect on my life that you don't tell your story and uh i i to me i i uh, i knew of a lot of young people especially young men who had experiences that were like mine that weren't that weren't extremes but they were enough to start really raising questions that just went completely undiscussed they existed in this space where we just didn't talk about it so i to me I, I, I wanted to be able to share my story because I knew that it wasn't a story that was often discussed, whether that's over the pulpit or, uh, you know, over, over every, anyone's favorite podcasts. And I thought this was a, a fantastic venue to be able to discuss that with someone who's removed enough from the situation, but close enough to the situation that you can simultaneously understand, but also see past, I think, a lot of the blind spots that people like myself who were born and raised in this tradition might still have. Hmm. And just even just 
tell me a little bit, even just off camera conversations you had with people that were that, you know, maybe other missionaries that maybe related other experiences or what kind of responses were you getting from people just in general? I, um, I knew this one person, I, I used to live in Provo for a little bit, um, about a little over a year. And I, he was one of the, one of the people that I had spoken to about his own mission experiences. He, he had experienced a lot of, uh, health problems. He, he had issues with his, his GI system and, uh, he, was essentially told by his mission president that the reason he was having these problems was because he didn't have enough faith, that he wasn't uh, trusting in the Lord enough to make him well and to help him through his mission, despite essentially vomiting every day, mm. just like not being able to keep meals down or anything like that. It was, it was terrible. And he told me in private about these just absolute shouting matches he would get into with his mission president, who was so insistent that if he would just trust essentially the church, um, but on a theologic, theological level, trust in the Lord that despite your struggles, you will do just fine. And it's kind of what I was getting at when, when I mentioned in our interview about my mission that everyone's sorry to hear this, but very few people understand. And I felt like this was a young man who really understood. And he opened up to me kind of hesitantly because again, it was a story that sort of falls outside of the narrative that it's either your best two years or it's your absolute worst two years. It's either proof that the church is good and God is at the helm, or it's proof that the church is the worst possible thing that ever happened and the devil himself might as well be running the place. And um, I, when I opened up about my own experiences back in 2018 for the first time, this person messaged me saying like, hey, I, I read this. I really loved this. Thank you. And it was that feeling of being able to tell other people's stories by telling my own story, other people's stories that went completely untold, that really was the spirit that I, I took with me going into our interview. And I, I, I ended up getting a lot of similarly positive responses after our interview from, from folks that I've, I've never met before, but people who have had connections to missionaries who had experiences similar to, to those that I had or to the young man that I just mentioned, um, or who themselves had those experiences. And they either felt like they were finally being heard or that they were finally understanding. And that was, that was an incredible experience for me personally, because I, I, I knew that I was, I knew that I was doing my it's hard to express, but I, I think that people have duties in their life. And, and I think that those duties are largely determined by circumstances that they don't choose. And I didn't choose to have the kind of mission that I had, but I did. And I think that that led to a duty to have to talk about it, to share it with other people. And uh, our interview, I think, was probably the most succinct and yet honest and open way I've expressed that. And I was so pleased to just receive so much positive feedback from people for it. It was a really, it really was a privilege uh, having that interview with you because um, it told me there were a few things that happened beforehand, but I realized my channel was going to be more than just a book review channel, but it, it's actually kind of interesting. A lot of people uh, have reached out to me about their plights, if you will. And um, I've 
kind of spiritually counseled people. Again, I'm not, uh, in one sense, I'm not qualified, but uh, except for life experiences. I have a very prominent author, um, well-known scholar who wants to sit down and do a one-on-one -on -one interview with me and talk about his spiritual journey. And he said, I don't want to tell you beforehand, but I want to tell it to you because I believe in what you're doing with your channel. In other words, there's a story that maybe wouldn't be told unless this endeavor was going on. And and that's really, it, it humbles me and it's a real privilege to have that access to people who feel that they can come to me and have these conversations. Um, and, and, and they're usually more spiritual, uh, but they're often, the fact is, is that, you know, we are hardwired to be spiritual. So if we can have, find happiness and peace in our spiritual well-being, that will also, of course, improve our well-being in general. And that's something that's happened to me. I'm, I've been at peace uh, for a while now, when a lot of people haven't been. And the Holy Spirit has basically just told me, Steve, just allow me to operate through you and all will be well. And when you hear it, when you have that sense, that certainly does help you with your ability to um, go through the day, knowing that you have something bigger than yourself that is in one sense supporting you. Absolutely. I think um, it, it matches my own experience. What you're describing matches my own experience. I, uh, I remember being really taken with uh, Taoism when I came home from my mission. So it's an indigenous religious tradition within China. And, and what the West sees as Taoism is, is a, a somewhat distilled philosophical version, but in China, it's, it's more of an indigenous religion as well. Um, but I, I just remember this, this little story. I think it's, I think it's Confucius and his disciples uh, from, uh, see this, this old man walking toward a river. And uh, Confucius thinks to himself, oh, what a shame, you know, the old man, he must be, uh, he must be ready to drown himself. He's, he's lived a long life, it's time to end it. And so the old man walks into the water and he disappears into this, just, it, he gets pulled by the water. And they see him go into this whirlpool. And then they see him come out of the whirlpool on the other side of the river and just keep walking like nothing had, nothing had happened. And so Confucius and his disciples are really confused by this. Um, so they, they track down this old man and they ask him like, how did you, how did you do that? And uh, as Alan Watts tells the story, he says, the old man replies to Confucius, well, uh, I went in with the whirl and I came out with the swirl. There was this, this sense in which uh, he didn't fight the water. He just flowed with it, even when it got turbulent and it put him out on the other side of the, the river. And I think that, um, when you when you describe how you you came to your own experience of, of uh, feeling feeling as if you could finally let go of your own will in a sense your own sense of what you think would be best or should be done and to allow as you describe it to allow the spirit to work through you I think that that's a very similar uh, experience which is that we we realize that we aren't these. We realize we aren't billiard balls on a table. We're more like waves on an ocean. You know, there's something bigger than us that acts through us rather than just very chaotic forces that just bump us around in random directions. Of course, a conversation with Nathan Smith is, is going to end on Confucius. Uh, <laughs> this is our typical Saturday night uh, conversation, folks. I'm glad that I'm able to share it with my audience. These are 
I mean, I'm having great off-camera conversations with people. Occasionally, I get them on camera, and those are my interviews. <laughs> and uh, I just want to thank everybody. You know, I, this was I, I just wanted to have this talk and have this conversation with Nathan because, you know, this is not to go after Christians or evangelicals or, you know, there's people on the right and the left that need, well, there's people on the right and left that need Jesus is what I, I have had to say as an evangelical, but they need, they, but they also need, you know, they need some well-being, they need peace in their lives, they need some stability, and I do think that, you know, our faith traditions can offer those, that, that to people, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the reason why these things happen, but I think that our faith can be the solution to these problems as well, and so we're trying, we're trying to find solutions on this channel, we're trying to build bridges, we're trying to do reconciliation, and we're also trying to bring um, healing to the individual and and through and and I think often through spiritual means we can achieve that. And maybe this little conversation we have will help you in your journey that we're all on. And we are all going to get through this uh, epidemic, everybody. Um, just be at peace and know that we, we will get better. This situation will get better and we will get through this together. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thank you once again, Steve. It's always a pleasure to get to chat with you. So I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe um, and make sure you hit the notification button to be informed when the new episode is coming out. Uh, peace out.